0: Good morning, good morning. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. It is the seventh of October, just in case, you know, you hadn't checked the calendar yet today and you were wondering, where in the word are you today? We are studying the book of Hebrews as a family. I think we're doing it more devotionally. I think I will say we are we are reading the book of Hebrews devotionally together as a family. And I am a little ahead of the group right now in terms of my reading. So even though as a family, uh, we are in chapter 3, I uh, was in Hebrews 11 and 12 last night, and I stopped on this verse. So this is uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. so as I read that, I uh, recalled having um having heard that particular verse emphasized in an ordination service of a friend of mine. now this goes back i don't know twenty some years. So, but I recall thinking at the time, that's such a strange verse during an ordination service, you know, a person moving into Christian ministry. I, you know, there's so many other verses, right, that you could emphasize and choose. But this verse comes on the heels of Hebrews chapter 11 and then, you know, the the beginning of chapter 12, where we're remembering all the saints who have gone before us, where we are chronicling uh those who have fought the good fight and finished the race, to borrow from the Apostle Paul. Um, And so if you're running a race, your footfalls matter. And you cannot allow your feet to sink into the mire of the present generational debate. And you also have to guard against getting tangled up in what the writer of Hebrews is describing here as the roots of bitterness. So I want you to think about that for a moment, that each each of us is running the race— set before us by the one who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Um, We're running that race, and there are roots of bitterness springing up to cause trouble. And so we are to look carefully for those. We are to pay attention to those because footfalls matter. So there will be injustices and hardships and cruelty, there will be disdain for you and the good work that uh, you are seeking to do as an ambassador of the king and the kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world today. Yes, absolutely. And, well, to borrow here from the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Jesus. I mean, in the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us to rejoice and be glad and focus on the kingdom, where, yes, our reward is great. And then he reminds us of the same truth spoken in Hebrews, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The conversations that we're having today about the roots of bitterness in today's culture, the challenges we face today as Christians— in this particular culture, they're, they're only different because the world is different today than it was when those who were persecuted in generations past faced difficulties in their own, in their own days and times. What's, what, what, what we should all anticipate, what's guaranteed, is that there are going to be challenges for people of faith Running the race set before us in whatever cultural reality, whatever generation we live in. So, if today is a hard day for you as a follower of Christ, I want you to hear this. You're not alone. You're not the first. You will not be the last. And you must not allow your feet to get tangled up today in the roots of bitterness. God is good and He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Great is His faithfulness. So let me encourage you to draw near to him and run the race that he has set before you and do so keeping your feet free of the roots of bitterness that the world would have bring you down. Our friend Ben Johnson joins us next. We'll be right back.
1: All
0: right. Ben Johnson is back. He's a media reporter for The Daily Wire. You can also find him online at The Rights Writer. Ben, good morning. Good morning,
2: Carmen. Good to be with you as always.
0: Oh, it's such a joy. All right, my friend, let me just ask this. Here's a fact check. I mean, you wrote an article on it, so I feel like you're prepared to have this conversation. Do most Americans oppose the Hyde Amendment? Uh, That would be false. Okay, so you have to remind us, what is the Hyde Amendment? um, And why do we think most Americans oppose it? And then how, in fact, do we know most Americans do not oppose it? Excellent
2: questions, as always. So, the Hyde Amendment, uh, of course, is U.S. policy that is is not found in any one bill. It's actually scattered throughout uh, multiple spending bills all throughout the federal government. But it uh, came about in the mid to late 1970s from uh, now-deceased Congressman Henry Hyde of Illinois. And essentially it blocks U.S. taxpayer funds from financing abortion in most cases. Uh, you can still finance uh, abortion cases of uh, rape and incest, but for every other case, federal dollars cannot be used for that purposes. Some state Medicaid programs will use state funds, but U.S. federal dollars cannot wherever this is invoked. Now, uh, this is a policy, again, that goes back to 1976, 77. Jimmy Carter signed it, Bill Clinton signed it, Barack Obama signed it. Joe Biden voted for it and supported it until he decided he wanted to run for president in 2019, and he changed a 40-year position on on that issue in order to run for president. Now, right now, for the first time, Democrats are talking about taking Hyde protections out of a major bill, a major spending bill, this $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill that they keep talking about. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is a a Democrat but does not believe in, in abortion on demand, uh, much less taxpayer funding of abortion on demand, has said that if this bill comes through without Hyde Amendment protections in it, it's, quote, dead on arrival. So either uh, we, we get rid of that funding or this bill is not going to pass. And Pramila Jayapal, who is the head of the, what's called the House Progressive Caucus, so this is AOC and that wing of, of Congress. It's actually much larger than just the squad. Uh, it's about 50, 50 members of the House. And uh, she's, a, center, she's a, a congresswoman from uh, the state of Washington, was asked by Dana Bash on CNN, uh, what about that? Uh, And she said uh, that the Hyde Amendment is something most Americans do not support. Well, so I decided to go to the tape. I got the receipts. I looked at the polls, and the polls are extraordinarily clear that the vast majority of people, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, not just Republicans but voters in general, oppose having their taxpayer dollars used for abortion. Uh, That's it, full stop. 58% of all voters, according to the most recent Marist poll, uh, and uh, there are polls going back for decades that show the exact same thing. That includes one-third, one out of every three Democrats, according to this poll. Now, people occasionally pick at that because the Marist poll was co-sponsored by the Knights of Columbus. We remember the Knights of Columbus membership suddenly became controversial because of uh, the Catholic Church's opposition to abortion and gay marriage. So uh, people have said that uh, maybe they have asked the question in some way or or weighted things wrongly. So just to put that to rest, I I quoted a a left-wing writer named William Salatin, who writes for Slate magazine. Slate is about as far left as you can get in respectable uh, uh, discourse, let's say. Very far left on all social issues. He quotes polls from places like Politico and Morning Consult and a bunch of secular left, YouGov and other places. They all say the same thing. William Salatin is on the left, but he makes the case. He says the polls do not help us here. Uh, The polls are lined up against us. And the polls is another way of saying the American people. The American people do not believe in having their tax dollars used to finance abortion on demand, nor should they. Uh, Bill Clinton, Al Gore, Richard Gephardt, Jesse Jackson uh, at various times either wrote or voted uh, against these kinds of things. Joe uh, Joe Biden wrote beautiful letters about how people who are pro-life should not have to be forced uh, to finance this. And yet for uh, for the first time of a bill of this size, uh, you have uh, this the step being taken out so that American protections uh, for the unborn are stripped out and all Americans have to pay for it. So uh, it's not a popular measure. It's not a measure that should be in there. And on this one, Joe Manchin's right and the House progressives are wrong.
0: All right, so um, I am in favor of the Hyde amendment and 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 I don't want my taxpayer dollars used to fund abortion in any way, shape, or form. What would you encourage me to do today?
2: I would encourage you make your make your position known to both your u s senators and your u s representative uh, so you have the opportunity to do that. of course, you can always call uh, the the House switchboard or send an email or call their local office. However, it may be that you prefer to communicate with them. But get a hold of their offices. Let them know that you support Joe Manchin on this. You do not want your taxpayer dollars used to finance abortion. And that uh, if this bill passes that and and it does not contain a Hyde Amendment and somehow it passes over Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema's opposition, then you will hold whoever it is who votes in favor of it responsible accordingly.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's super helpful. All right. Ben Johnson and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. When we come back, he's going to explain everything we need to know about the debt limit. (laughs) Yeah. You good? You good with that, Ben? Does that sound like a plan? Let's not lose
2: him before we get into the segment.
0: Oh, my goodness. All right. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Well, depending which uh, media headline you're reading, you might see a headline that says what would happen if the most economically powerful country in the world were to default on its debt. You might read it this way, U.S. debt default payments um, and the looming catastrophe, a trillion dollar platinum coin. Um, those are some of the headlines related to the question uh, of whether or not the United States is going to default um, on its debt. What's going on here, Ben?
2: Well, uh, this this is one of those uh, issues that uh, people's eyes tend to glaze over, but it really is an incredibly important issue. Uh, where we're talking about the debt, uh, the debt, li- the debt limit or the debt ceiling, you may have heard either of those terms used. What that means is that, uh, you know, the United States obviously is in a m- massive amount of debt, $28 trillion of, of indebtedness. And Congress will authorize itself to borrow, you know, the federal government to borrow a certain amount of money. Uh, but once it hits that, that is the debt limit. Well, we, we actually reached that some time ago. And so the the Treasury has been shifting money around, moving money from one account to another in order to pay its bills but it will no longer to pay, be able to pay all of its bills come October 18th, which is, of course, a week from now, a little over a week from now. So when we're looking at uh, this kind of an issue, uh, once that happens, the United States will have to reprioritize the way that it pays bills, and some of the bills won't be able to be paid all at once. Now, it may or may not be as catastrophic as, as it's made out to be, but it's not going to be good if that happens. Uh, there have been economic models that would show it's it's possible that a recession could occur. Uh, it would certainly cost jobs, even in a, a very small, short-term uh, issue. There have been multiple nonpartisan studies that show it would be bad for the economy if that were to happen. Let's just say it that way. So that's, that's the underlying debt uh, ceiling issue. Mitch McConnell, the uh, Senate Republican leader, came up with a couple of plans where the Democrats uh, and Republicans could work together to raise that. Uh, but it would uh, require certain moves on the Democrats' part. We'll see if they're amenable to them. Uh, basically, would mean reining in spending on certain things. The, uh, the debt limit, though, is for the money that's already been spent, and you know, the United States needs to keep financing it or pay it off. Uh, so, we're going to keep doing this every time we hit the debt ceiling. It's become more and more of a political tool in order to try and wring concessions out of one side or the other. Both parties have used it for political purposes. Democrats used it just in a few years ago under Donald Trump, threatening not to raise the debt limit. So there are no clean hands in this. But uh, the U.S. economy is sort, sort of held hostage uh, in between these two uh, extremes. Uh, really, the underlying issue is that the United States needs to quit spending trillions upon trillions of dollars that it does not have and financing this. Uh, so far, we've always been able to grow out of it. And that's sort of the underlying understanding that U.S. growth will at least enable us to keep paying the debt. But uh, it's, it's sort of like a, a great athlete or someone who's uh, experiencing a, a great growth spurt in his own personal life. And he thinks I can keep having the extra dessert because I'll burn the calories off and I won't gain any weight. But as uh, all of us who have been in that situation know sooner or later that wears off and you enter another stage of life. And so do economies. They grow and they progress. And at some point, uh, what we have to ask the question, what happens if we don't outgrow the debt? What happens if the debt outgrows the economy? We need to start acting fiscally responsible and paying these things off. The, the Bible says the, the borrower is the servant or the slave to the lender, and we need to quit creating so many trillions of dollars of lenders.
0: Okay, and I know it seems a little silly, but apparently they're having real conversations um, at a strategic level, like how quickly could we do it um, in terms of minting a platinum trillion dollar coin. I want one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no. What? 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 They're. Uh, is it worth right. a trillion dollar? I mean, I, I, like, do we? Can we just declare that a one ounce platinum eagle is suddenly worth a trillion dollars, and we can deposit it at the Fed, and that pays a trillion dollars worth of like? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, is that legit?
2: You know, it's it's as legit because uh, we can we can print up a, a little piece of uh, paper and cloth and say that it's worth a dollar. Uh, everything about our our finance system is is sort of done by what's known as fiat currency, which is to say that uh, we were removed from the gold standard under uh, FDR and then completely under, um, we cut the last remaining uh, links to the gold standard under President Nixon. So all of this is basically uh, worth whatever you believe it is worth. Uh, The only thing that is behind that is the full faith and credit of the U.S. government if for some reason people think that maybe the full faith and government and full faith and credit of the US isn't worth uh, the paper that it's printed on then you you start to get the perception that the US dollar isn't really worth a dollar and that's that's sort of the uh, subtext of all this believe it or not it is perfectly legal and legitimate if uh, the president should so order he could have a platinum coin made up that is worth a trillion dollars have it flown from the mint to the uh, Federal Reserve and use that in order to keep paying this. Uh, There is a there's a section in U.S. law which says the U.S. government may mint platinum coins of any denomination. uh, And usually what these are done, these are those commemorative collector's coins you see advertised late at night on television, you know, that have a specific person on them. They're commemorating the life of Elvis or whatever. And and you can buy them for five or ten or twenty dollars from from the Franklin Mint or wherever it may be and it was specifically written to raise money for the U.S. government. Well, this would really raise money because they would be creating a fiat currency of one platinum coin that would be used by one entity, uh, and it'd be worth a trillion dollars. Uh, this this idea was endorsed by Paul Krugman of the New York Times. Uh, the Barack, uh, Barack Obama has uh, originally, he said it was just a gimmick, but... Uh, it, they've come out later and said, you know, he was really very seriously considering this during the debt limit standoff back in 2011. So uh, this this is something that could be done. Uh, and and uh, if if that is done, uh, there are economists who who debate what the effect would be. But uh, the real the real question here is if, if you're going to do it for a trillion, why not go big? Why not go the whole twenty eight trillion? Just wipe the debt out with it. Uh, and and the answer is at what point does this become a clown show that undermines the the uh, global uh, the global uh, confidence in the ability of uh, the United States to pay off its debts or that the dollar is worth the the dollar that's printed on?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like we wouldn't just print one.
2: Mint. No, why, why stop just at one. Yeah, it's, I think we would. It's just like a potato one.
0: chip. You, no, yeah, one I, one. Yeah. N- no one can have just one. No one can have just one. Okay, so um, we can. Can you spend one minute on the Supreme Court as the arbiter of religious freedom? What is an arbiter, and how is the Supreme Court potentially functioning as the arbiter of religious freedom in the United States?
2: Great question. And and an arbiter is just like what George W. Bush used to call himself when he was president. It's a decider. Uh, they, They make the decisions about what is and is not covered by religious liberty. And the reason that uh, this issue has come up is because if you look at the Supreme Court docket for this coming year, of course, the Supreme Court always begins its sessions the first Monday in October of every year. So it just went into session and the, the docket is packed with religious liberty cases. So you've got the issue of school choice in Maine. Uh, you have the Dobbs case out of Mississippi, which determines whether uh, Roe v. Wade could be overturned or at least amended to allow life to be protected from 15 weeks forward. Or possibly, for reasons other than viability, which would open the door to a lot of pro-life protections being passed all over, uh, you have the issue of whether pastors and uh, counselors can lay hands on uh, prisoners who are on death row moments before they die, because believe it or not, it is currently prohibited uh, for you to touch the uh, the person who is uh, being condemned and on death row in their final moments, they think that it would be a, a risk it would be a safety risk for the person uh, to be within that kind of proximity of someone who is a, a desperate man, apparently. Uh, so there there are several religious liberty cases, and the issue is why is this all being decided by the Supreme Court? And uh, the, there was a piece at UPI that sort of delved into this. My, my answer to this is very simple, which is, this is what happens when legislators have no respect for the First Amendment or religious liberty. You have laws that gra- egregiously, vastly overstep their ability Uh, under the First Amendment, that disregard people's religious liberties, their ability to live out their faith, not simply on Sunday morning, but day in and day out, wherever it is they happen to be. And when legislators ignore that, the only recourse that people have, that honest, good people have, is to go to the courts and to fight and to show the kind of legal resistance that we have. Uh, That's one of the great things that came out of the previous administration. We have a whole level, a whole new, uh, not just one group, but... uh, Hundreds of judges all over the country that respect the First Amendment, and these judges are are now making a big difference in these cases, and three of them happen to be on the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's good that we have that legal backstop, but uh, it's also the sign that the culture war has shifted from one of protection uh, on behalf of the legislators to one of aggression against our religious liberties under the First Amendment.
0: Mm. Ben Johnson has some great stuff posted right now at Daily Wire. Um, I am highly recommending that you read the one on all social media users being required to give those social media platforms personal information and have their opinions verified as true, which is what CNN's Don Lemon would like to see as the way forward. All right, Ben, as always, thank you so much. Great, great stuff that you've got right now up at DailyWire.com. Really appreciate your being with us today.
2: Thanks, for, as always, for having this wonderful conversation. God bless.
0: Uh, Likewise, we'll be right back. All right, uh, the number of Americans with a criminal history or criminal record has risen consistently over um, the past three decades. A full quarter, um, nearly one third of all adults in America of working age have a criminal record. So everybody needs a second chance. How do they get that second chance? We're going to talk with John Purcell about the Second Chance Business Coalition. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: When a teenager doesn't know what's expected in your home, he does what seems right in his own eyes. And that's a formula for disaster. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. A good way to avoid chaos in the teenage years is to establish what I call a belief system for discipline. It's a clear plan for the standards expected in your home. Think about what you want in your household, the lines you don't want crossed and consequences for crossing them. Create some structure by communicating what you expect, then following through with discipline and privileges for corresponding behavior. Take a stand against chaos in your home. Your clearly stated belief system can be the recipe for a happy and healthy family. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: Joining us today is John Purcell. We're going to talk about the Second Chance Business Coalition. John, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
1: Thanks so much, Carmen, for having me.
0: Absolutely. All right. So we think we know what a coalition is. We think we know maybe even what a business coalition is. What is the Second Chance Business Coalition?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you asking. So the Second Chance Business Coalition has uh, been coming together for actually about over over a year and a half now you probably have seen in the news and in uh, kind of the the forefront of the national consciousness, um, especially in the wake of George Floyd, a lot of companies trying to to figure out how they can be more supportive of um, uh, underserved communities and, you know, black communities. And and, um, fortunately, the sort of the criminal justice system. It's it's just you look at the numbers, you really can't talk about um, more inclusion for the black community if if you're not um, thinking about second chance hiring. So um, about a year and a half ago, a group came together, of, led by J.P. Morgan Chase, Stand Together, the Business Roundtable, as well as the Society for Human Resource Management, and Georgetown McDonough School of Business, and, and Dave Skiller-Bread. And kind of we had this sort of shared vision around how could we help catalyze and, and move the uh, business community to, to figure out how we don't leave this, this great talent and this uh, on the sidelines. If someone comes out of prison or out of jail... Uh, there's 44 collateral, 44,000 collateral consequences what, that might prevent you from employment, with just rules, regulations, all these restrictions. And if you don't give folks who are coming out, who spent, did their time, um, you know, according to law, a chance to participate in the economy, there's there's probably a likelihood that they they might end up going back and in this kind of terrible cycle. So, uh, we we came together about again a year and a half ago, but we officially launched in April. Original Gold has had 10 major employers, uh, you know, some of the biggest companies in the country, biggest employers. We were really pleased. We landed it with uh, 29 of them came together and said, this is this is a valuable workforce that um, that we need to figure out how to tap into. So, so the coalition has been working. Um, some companies are pretty advanced on uh, this and have some well-developed pilot initiatives. Other ones are, are just kind of figuring out how to how to start. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really a place for everybody to come together and share best practices, spotlight good stories, tools, resources, thinking through all the all the difficulties and challenges, whether it be, you know, updating your background check system or your processes to, to even you know, legal liability and, and kind of concerns around that that the general counsels might have. So we're just getting started with the work, but uh, it's, it's been um, it's been a, a good process and we've started to build some momentum.
0: So we have talked um, here on occasion about the need for reform of the criminal justice system. We have talked about some of those collateral consequences that prevent a formerly incarcerated person from participating in the economy. But I think that some of it, I think it's helpful, uh, Jonathan, to revisit some of those things. So when I think about a person who um, has been to prison, I might have some thoughts and some biases related to that, that are very likely not true. I also uh, am likely not familiar with all of the hurdles that an individual uh, faces once they're, you know, like literally dropped off following, you know, doing their time. So they're back out. They've just gotten off the bus. They've got the, you know, required $20 or something in their pocket. They have some requirements upon them in terms of how quickly they need to find housing and employment and and check in with a parole officer and all of those things are really, really challenging. I mean, you know, starting with they don't even have a ride from where they are, nor necessarily know where they're going to go. So talk with us just about some of, I mean, obviously, we're not covering all 44,000 of the collateral consequences, but just give us a sense of what some of those hurdles might be.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, it, it certainly is a um, challenge for anybody, especially in that, that first um, couple-month period where they're reentering society where... I mean, some states it's it's really hard for them to even get a driver's license. Um, you know, as you can imagine, how do you show proof of ID? And, I mean, just even simple simple things like that. You know, I think there's there's a lot of things um, that I think probably is you know, this is the government's lane to to think through. But um, just even even restrictions um, for you know government contractors or different types of jobs that they just won't be allowed to even apply for. So. You know i think there's there's been some great groups and organizations and companies who've been working around kind of expungement right. services there's a lot of thoughts around even just that first three months it's if if some of these folks just were able to get housing um you know they might have worn thin some of your your network your family um where they might not be be willing to help you out and it's just it, it puts you in a pretty pretty um detrimental spot to to find some sort of success so you know, I think there's there's lots of things that um, you know think local local and state governments can do to make it to make it easier. You know, again, it's um, we're not trying to to say folks um, you know have committed crimes, but it's it's you know should be get a free pass or once they're out or whatnot. But they they definitely um, you know deserve an opportunity to participate in the economy once once they d- did their time and and whatnot. It's uh it's it's been you know. It, it, I think there's just sort of a, almost sort of a cultural kind of shift too that uh, that needs to happen as well. Um, you know, a lot of times we talk about you know this person might have been their worst day of their life. They made a bad mistake. Um, we've all had made mistakes in our lives and, and have had bad days. But almost being in a position where you're not judged for that forever. And also talk about a lot too about folks kind of aging out of crime. You know, if, if you're 18 years old, you you might have been done something stupid and, and now you're out when you're 30, you're, you're just a lot less likely to, um, to commit crime if you have an opportunity to, to again, have, have kind of some baseline, um, be part of the economy, have a job and, and try to work towards, you know, housing and, and transportation. And so there's some great nonprofits out there that um, a lot of our coalition members work with that, that provide that support, those kind of wraparound services to help get folks back on their feet.
0: That's cool. Let's um let's take a brief break. When we come back, John John Purcell and I are gonna continue our conversation about the Second Chance Business Coalition. You can check it out at secondchancebusinesscoalition.org. We'll be right back. Nothing sweeter than the day we find forgiveness, forgiveness, Continuing our conversation now with John Purcell. Um the organization is the Second Chance Business Coalition. You can find them online at secondchancebusinesscoalition.org. Um John, let's talk um let's talk about the power that this has not only, you know, for the individual who's given a second chance and an opportunity, but let's talk about the impact on on the companies as well. What are you seeing and what are you hearing from those who are already participating um in this effort?
1: Yeah, so it's um you hear a lot of great stories where it's. Um, I think the companies that are most successful at this are ones who don't don't think about this as charity. They think about the the business case for it, where bringing these diverse backgrounds, diverse life experiences, actually can enhance the company and and make them uh, better connected with all different parts of society. And, and they they do bring a lot of value. So you know, kind of on the business case, you, you see folks who are so grateful for being given that second chance. That they end up staying with the company a company a much longer time. There's, this is a big thing. where sort of this great recession right now, and and you think through how much it costs to train, retrain, um, upskill, and, and keep talent. There, there's a good business. I mean, there's there's you know thousands of dollars that go into that. But if you're able to keep someone there for several years and they continue to to again grow and and upskill and, and create value for your company, you're able to see the actual numbers where it does make sense to tap into this. Tap into to this um, non-traditional talent pipeline.
0: Yeah, I remember conversations that we had with Van Jones um, when CNN did their Redemption Project a couple of years ago, and that helped us have a window into just the real the real lives and the circumstances of people who, you know, as you say, they did a stupid thing, but uh, potentially a really awful, deadly thing, and and it's the worst day of their life, and they deeply regret it, and they have paid what our society considers you know, the, the due penalty for their actions, we want uh, our justice system to be restorative. We want it to be redemptive. And in order for that to be the case, then the culture at large has to be a culture of second chances. It has to be a culture um, that does not continue to judge a person forever for uh, you know, the stupid thing they did on the worst day of their life, potentially when they were very young. And so I think it's really helpful. The other thing I'm aware of in the midst of this conversation is that laws have changed over time as well. And many formerly incarcerated individuals, if they did the same thing today that they had done when they got caught and, and prosecuted uh, and convicted of a crime, some of those things are not even criminal anymore. And so I think that when we have this conversation with one another, um, we need to recognize you know, potentially all the things that we have done had we been caught and prosecuted, we would be in the circumstance of these uh, of these individuals as well. So part of this is empathy, I think, empathizing with others and learning to ask somebody about their story and then be patient to hear it. And I remember having a conversation with some, I did not know. I mean, it did not, I was not aware that these were formerly incarcerated gentlemen that I sat down with outside of the rescue union, uh, the union mission in Washington, D.C., one afternoon, and they were having a conversation. And I was due to be in a meeting in their building a little bit later. And I sat down with them and we started talking. And this was prior to an election cycle. And that's what they were talking about. And so I innocently asked, "Okay, well, you know, who are you going to vote for? And they look at each other and then they look at me and they're like, well, we don't get to vote and that yeah. led to an interesting conversation as well like right so i just i just think that you know those two guys are good examples of they were older they had done their time they were clearly not uh it, by my perception any kind of threat and they're living at the rescue mission because they can't get a place to live they can't get a driver's license they and and they can't vote i mean like let's just you know go down the list of things yeah. that they're prohibited yep. from doing Um, And yet I, at some level, expect them to get a job. It's just it's when you start thinking through the barriers um, that exist for formerly incarcerated individuals, the list is long. And if we're going to be I mean, this is a program where I'm talking to Christians. If we're going to be Christians about this, then redemption has to be the conversation that we're having. And restorative justice has to be the model that we're seeking. And so the Second Chance Business Coalition is engaged in that. This is redemptive work, and um, and I think should be encouraged. What do you guys need the most help with as you get this thing off the ground?
1: Yeah, no, and just just to sort of expand on what you've been saying too is, you know, this is it's it's sometimes tough for folks to to maybe take take a step back and think, oh, you know, spent your time, done this, but you really, I mean, it's it's good for communities, it's good for business. If these folks can't can't you know again get land a job, that's that's probably. You know, gonna maybe make your community less safe because there's, there's no opportunities for them and they might have to turn back to, to past ways. You know, I think, I think some of the, the great work that uh, has been coming out of this and, and some of the knowledge is, is really been CEOs being able to stand up and, and say, This is the type of company we want to be. We want to be more inclusive. We, we want to give these folks this opportunity. To participate, and you know, not everybody's ready, but but a lot of them are, and the ones who are should be given that chance. Um, so there's some, there's been some wonderful stories with different uh, initiatives that some of the companies have been doing, where they really partnered really closely with community nonprofits. We found mm-hmm. that that's been that's been kind of the special sauce to to make this successful. So, um, you know, su- supporting these groups, these workforce development groups, these reentry um, programs, initiatives, these you know C threes out there that that can really help make the connection. So, you know, if there is some re-entry work, some, again, skilling, reskilling for in-demand jobs um, that we've, that, you know, that we keep talking about, um, you know, workforce issues and workforce shortages, if they're able to work with these nonprofits and say, Hey, these are the types of jobs we have open. Here's the type of folks we're looking for. Um, you know, a lot of times it might be um, very entry level just um, from, from the nature of, of how uh, some of the formerly incarcerated might have um, you know, been able to participate in the, uh, getting a quality education and then having the nonprofits really know like, Hey, here's, here's the right person for this. Here's, here's the type of people, or, or here's maybe how we're going to change or manage or, or rework our, our trainings so that we're getting folks into this, in this pipeline and, and having these kind of just good conversations, building trust and really is kind of a, a bottom up, way too because there is no kind of national group that has solved this so it's, it's really about I think thinking about your community who you're working with and and building these connections of these workforce development groups and one of the actually the exciting things too that's that's come of this from from some of the pilot initiatives and and work from the companies is it's not even just helping folks who are getting in the second chances world it's helping actually a lot of other underserved communities Get into um, again these get on the radar of these HR groups and these re- recruit recruiters, so that they can participate in these these good paying jobs and uh, you know enjoy the enjoy the you know economic prosperity that uh, that so many of us are able to do uh, in this country. But but also so many are kind of maybe um, left out because of you know a variety of circumstances, including um, having a past criminal record. You know it, it's it's funny you tell that story of those those folks you met. You um, know this isn't for incarcerated folks, but one in four people actually have a criminal record, so i, I don 't know how many people are in the studio with you right now, but if you look around statistically you know some some of there probably is a criminal record uh, it's, it's um It's a challenging thing with um our criminal justice system
0: yeah absolutely John um thank you so much uh. I'm in the studio by myself, so it would be looking in the mirror. There you go.
1: There mm-hmm.
0: you, <laughs> uh, you go. John you uh, go. John Purcell from the Second Chance Business Coalition. You guys should check it out, secondchancebusinesscoalition.org. All right, I want you to imagine for a moment that your sin record followed you around uh, in the same way that criminal records follow formerly incarcerated people around today. So, um, there's a box that many people have to check um, in terms of employment, and there's an effort across the country um, to ban the box. That box is the box that you have to check that says that, you know, you have a felony record. I want you to imagine that there's a sin box, and you have to check it, and you have to check it everywhere you go, and you have to check it no matter what. If you know that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you have to check the box. Well, obviously we wouldn't have a box like that because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so I am um, cognizant of the need to uh, protect children from sexual predation. So I'm not talking about specific crimes and uh, things that challenge us in our culture that are persistent, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the general population of those who are formerly incarcerated Um, have done their time, have, quote-unquote, paid their debt to society. And then I'm challenging us as Christians to think about that from the Christian worldview. Who do we know that paid our debt for us? Well, we know Jesus. And what would Jesus have to say about not only visiting those who are in prison, but making a way for them once they're out? And do you really want a justice system to be redemptive and restorative, or do you just want to live in a constant, punitive society? So let's have this conversation today. Um, think about it. Pray about it. Consider it. Engage with um, a restorative ministry in your own community with those who are formerly incarcerated. The, uh, the life yet to be lived and the good works yet to be done are yet to be seen. All right. We have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.